you have even in the Bible, in the beginning was the word, logos. This is across one culture after another, Western cultures, Eastern cultures. Those who possessed this had power because they could, in fact, preserve the knowledge of the past. And so from the very start, writing was a kind of, of a power. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Well, hello there. Today, my guest is Marianne Wolf, a scholar, teacher, and an advocate for children and literacy around the world. She's the director of the newly created Center for Dyslexia, Diverse Learners, and Social Justice at the UCLA Graduate School of Education. She completed her doctorate at Harvard University, where she began her work in cognitive neuroscience. And are you ready for this? And developmental psycholinguistics on the reading brain, literacy development, and dyslexia. She has served on the Library of Congress Advisory Committee on Literacy Awards, the Advisory Committee to the X Prize, whose new award targets global literacy based in part on the recent work on literacy by her joint team in Ethiopia. She's the author of Proust and the Squid, The Story and Science of the Reading Brain. She's also written a book called Dyslexia, Fluency and the Brain. And her most recent book is called Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World. That's the book I read. In this interview, we talk about the significance of reading. Marianne makes a bold claim, but then she backs it up, talking about the fact that human beings were never born to read. And then she talks about in the book, in this interview, how we create a circuit in our brain through the act of reading. I will tell you this, if you listen to this interview, you might want to get a dictionary handy. Or if you're studying for the SAT or your kid is, there's a lot of great vocabulary that Marianne drops throughout this interview. So that's just the, the listener beware. In this interview, we explore a concept that she's coined a term called deep reading, what it is, why it matters. We also explore the decline in empathy that researchers have found in our society over the last few decades and how that might be associated with the way our reading habits have changed. We also explore a couple other terms continuous partial attention, hyperattention, which is rapid task switching, high levels of simulation, low levels of threshold of boredom. This interview is perhaps the most scientific academic interview I've done in nearly a year and a half. I wanted to talk to Marianne because I love language. If you listen to this show regularly, you probably do too. I love reading. I love writing. I love self-expression and what it makes possible. And I'm really grateful to Marianne for sharing her knowledge and her expertise on this show. It's a little different from many of the other interviews I've done, but I believe if you have any love at all 
for the written word, the spoken word, the power of language, that you'll enjoy this interview. The very first question, there's a ticking clock. So that doesn't last through the whole thing. You might notice it, but then it goes away. You can learn more about Marianne by visiting her website, MarianneWolf.com. And Marianne is spelled with an E. M-A-R-Y-A-N-N-E, Wolf.com. Marianne, welcome to the School for Good Living. What a wonderful name for a podcast (laughs) and for an endeavor. Uh, That was, I think, why I decided to say yes. Yes. Well, thank (laughs) you. It's working. (laughs) Yeah, good. Fantastic. Well, Marianne, the question I always start with is, what's life about? Life is, for me, something of the greatest gifts that human beings have. That does not mean it's an easy gift. It's a gift full of joys and sorrows and love and every emotion under the sun. It's a set of gifts that constantly change and evolve. But for me, as, I, as every decade passes, I gain new insights into what life is. But I think in this moment, unprepared as I am for any comprehensive answer to your question, I would say love above all is what life is about loving others, being loved by others, learning to have a discerning, loving attitude towards, for me, what I call God, for my family and my friends, and my amazing gift of earth. So that's what I would say this moment. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. When people ask you who you are and what you do, How do you usually answer that question, or how do you like to answer it? Well, unlike other people, I have a chameleon-like answer to that question depending on the person. So my aged father says, she's still in school, and that's what she does. (laughs) (laughs) To my children, as they were growing up, I would tell them I'm a farmer of children, and now... After especially my last books, I feel I am both a farmer of children and a woman of letters, and letters with all the meanings that are possible. Letters meaning I want every child, every human to become literate, to become lettered, and also because I have found that the genre of letters allows me like few other genres, to give my particular knowledge base as a dialogue with other. So on the one hand, I have been speaking metaphorically as a farmer of children, as a woman of letters, but professionally I'm known as a cognitive neuroscientist who studies the workings of the human brain, particularly for how the brain ever learned to read and how that knowledge base helps us with all forms of learning, especially children, children with neurodiverse learning styles like dyslexia. So I'm a mother, a researcher, a person who's never stopped going to school, (laughs) a teacher. And I guess if, if all got put into one big pot. I'm a mother. (laughs) 
who uses her research for as many children as I can. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, that, you know, that leads me to a question in your book, Reader Come Home, which Amazon recommended to me. I'm not sure what that means about my my reading habits, but as I read it, I found so much in your book that really resonated. I too, I love language, I love letters, and I was fascinated by one experience in particular you share pretty early in the book about when you were teaching in Hawaii. Mm. Yes. And I yes. wonder if you'd be willing to share that story with people who are listening and the decision or decisions you made as a result of that. So it's it was wonderful for me when I was writing this book to realize that the reason why I have done everything is for children, but it has led me around the world and around the world of knowledge and around the world physically. So I was going to be, probably not unlike you, Brian, a student of English literature the rest of my life and German literature and French literature and Italian literature. But I was especially going to be a scholar, I hoped, of poetry, the poetry of Rainer Maria Rilke. And I had two degrees in English literature when it was like an epiphany for me I must not simply go forward, but I have to find a way to be of service before I go into academic life. And so there was a Peace Corps-like opportunity for me. And I was supposed to be sent to the Dakotas, to a, a Native American reservation. And I was prepared to be cold and, and miserable a lot of the time, but I would be really working with kids. And everything fell apart. There was no money even for housing, much less food. And so they said, we're so sorry, but we have to send you to rural Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how old are you at this time? You're in your 20s? Oh, my God. I'm 22. Wow. And I'm like, oh, my God, there's no political cachet in the world for going to Hawaii. There's no <laughs> misery. There's no suffering. What good will I do? And that was the beginning of the rest of my life because I discovered what it meant in this tiny little rural village. There was barely a road there. And we all lived in, actually, it was, it was a place where there had been a convent. It had no doors. It had just little curtains. It was really rather odd. And a group of us were volunteers. And we worked, it seemed to me, 12, 15 hours a day. We worked with the children. We worked with adults, largely with the children in the study, re restoring a school to them. But the process was one that changed my life because I realized that these children, many of whom were in real poverty, invisible poverty, because their, their small houses were owned by a plantation and they had this like Quonset hut type things. It was, but there were orchids on them. So they were both beautiful and terribly poor and they had to eat in the grocery store. I'll never forget the name was Fujioka's. I may forget my neighbor's name, but I will never forget Fujioka's store because that's where everybody had to shop 
and it was the worst possible food in this gorgeous island full of vegetation and fruits and vegetables that one could imagine. Everything was it like the people were indentured servants. Now, there, that wasn't the only group of people. There were Filipinos. A lot of the Filip some of the Filipinos had really immigrated before, but many of the Filipino children were truly in the bowels of poverty there. And their parents weren't literate. And I, I remember seeing rocking chairs at night for some of the men who had been unable to earn enough money to bring their families. And I realized that year that unless I could teach these children to read, they were going to be as indentured as their parents. And by the end of the year, I had not succeeded, Brian. I had succeeded with those who would, would learn to read whether I was there or not. But with those children who really needed help, I didn't know enough. And my failure, my love and my failure were equal with those children. I still remember their names. And the failure made me decide to leave English literature. The love of literature would always remain. But I needed to know the science. And I wasn't, I wasn't content with what, if you will, education was normally went to Harvard Reading Lab because I thought there I would have the best chance to study. How I knew this still is a kind of miracle to me, but I realized then way, I will say, decades before anyone thought neuroscience was cool, I realized that you had to understand how the brain learned to read if I was going to help really teach teachers how to teach these children. And that was it. I never looked back. I became what I am now, this cognitive neuroscientist. But it was, in, it, was, it was like so many of us. We don't know exactly what path will be, but we know, and I always knew, I had to help children. And so I feel that now I try to help the world's children if I can. And here I am at UCLA and I'm a bit set on helping California children in a very serious way. So the story is a long one, but it, it has, it has, it's just all about what can we do with our best knowledge. And in this case, it's the science of reading that has changed my life. I love the way that you talk about that now and in the book and the the insight i had you know you shared the words this way that you realize that those children might never reach their full potential as human beings if they never learn to read and for myself as a coach mm -hmm. and one who's committed to helping people become the best version of themselves and make the contribution they want to make and basically live the life they want to live i had never even thought about literacy as the foundation or a foundation for which to you know move closer to self-actualization or maybe even self-transcendence this kind of thing but your words really intrigued me as well you know there were a lot of thoughts i'd never had before like this statement you make that human beings were never born to read like that thought just stopped me and then in a different somewhere else i understand you say that we know from research that the reading circuit 
meaning the reading circuit in the brain is not given to human beings through a genetic blueprint like vision or language. It needs an environment to develop. Will you talk more about that? Because that seems like an arresting Mm. claim, like a bold claim that reading is not natural to humans in the way that spoken language is. It's essential. If there was any one huge epiphany, and I must tell you, I, when I realized it's such a simple thought. In fact, it's, I can remember reading as a, as a student, Piaget, and Piaget would say these things. Sometimes the simplest thought is the most complex one. And that was the case for me. When I realized that, you know, our whole life we think, oh, everyone can learn to read. It's a natural thing. But once you understand there is nothing natural about reading, it is one of the most complicated circuits that the brain makes. And here we have, as, 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 a, as a species, it took us 2,000 years to move from one writing system to an alphabet. 2,000 years to get the different insights. Is this from like cuneiform to... A written alphabet? Yes, yes, all the way all the way to an alphabet. And we give our kids two thousand days to learn insights that will set up, begin to set up the connections among vision, visual processes, language processes, cognitive processes, and emotional processes. None of that is connected. Reading connects the brain in a new way. But it wasn't there. We human beings have these very basic functions like language and vision, olfactory, articulation, all these things, motor system, all of that has a genetic program. Reading doesn't. So in Hawaii, before I knew anything, my insight was social rather than physiological. The insight was that these children, if they can't read, will never go on past third or fourth grade to become the thinking people that will allow them to reach their potential. So literacy is setting up the brain to learn all these new things. Now, there are, math is a wonderful circuitry too. Both of these are new circuits. They don't exist. No baby comes out of here, <laughs> out of our mothers, ready to read. They aren't. That's who we are. We as a society teach our young to learn this new circuit, but it's an invention. So both of the things you said are insights that I had. The one was a sociological, educational, or pedagogical insight that if they don't learn how to read, they're not going to have the foundation to learn in such a way they will become who they want. That was a pedagogical, sociological one. But the neurological one came later when I realized there is nothing in that brain that prepares you to read except its capacity to make new circuits out of older parts. That's what the brain gives you. Yeah, that's so, so fascinating. And I know, I love the way you wrote this book as a series of letters, you know, to me, the reader, to us, the reader, and, and how you go deep into that, that neuroscience of what's actually happening, Mm -hmm. which I thought was, was really fascinating. And, and for me, one of the things that it makes, you know, one of the, one of the ways I get so excited about it is thinking, well, if this is a circuit, you know, if nothing prepares us other than the brain's innate capacity to create that is 
what else is possible mm -hmm. for us as human beings? Exactly. Uh, one of the things that was so beautiful for me, even though a part of my book is a critique of the, di of the digital age, of the digital medium, it's also an apologia for this is just a set of mediums we have now. We have the capacity to develop all these new mediums that we will be able to communicate with. And we're just in the beginning of that. So you're absolutely correct. We, but the, the important point is, is that these circuits are plastic and they are malleable and they will change with us. But buyer and reader beware. You have to know this, this beautiful plasticity has a dark side. It can become what the medium tells it to become. It, it reflects the medium. But the more beautiful and optimistic and hopeful point is that, yes, we can and we will develop new circuits. Yeah. Well, say more about that, that it can become what the medium you know, we'll shape it to become, or so what, I mean, obviously this is a big, this is a very central part of your book, but mm -hmm. I mean, what does that even mean? Because I think many people listening, it, it's not that they would disagree, but it might be something they hadn't even considered. They know very few people consider that. Yeah. Of course. Why would they? You know, the, because our, our society takes reading for granted. It's just something you do in school, R failing to recognize that it's one of the most difficult tasks that a human being is asked to do. And very importantly, that it's an environmentally stimulated one. It's a nurtured circuit. So let's just, just give a very basic example. If I spoke Chinese, I would have a different circuit. Amazing, isn't that a thought? Well, let me tell you, just as a fleshing out of that, that one of the first, as a young student, one of the first articles I ever read about how the brain processes different languages, a person in China was perfectly bilingual and spoke Chinese and English and read both and then had a stroke. He lost only Chinese, but could still read English. Now, the truth is, I can't remember, really, which he lost. <laughs> I have to tell you. As a scientist, I want to just say, you can't say that. You have to tell the truth that you can't remember whether he lost English or Chinese. But the point is, he kept one and lost the other. Why? Because the writing system changes the circuit. It is reflected in the circuit. So think about what Chinese characters are. They're visual. They have a lot of, without going into all these details, there's a lot of visual memory required. So you have the visual areas in the brain much more activated, much more used, much more filled, if you will, with representations of Chinese characters well, English has 26 measly letters. We're always complaining. But the reality is that that set of letters has multiple sounds, multiple ways of being used. But the way that a language is used is reflected in the circuit itself. Now, that's just writing systems. Mm -hmm. So one, and even English versus 
Italian, there are differences in the circuit because Italian is very regular or German or Spanish. So the requirements in English, just think, I know we're getting into the weeds of linguistics here, but just think about an EA. How many possible pronunciations are there to EA? Well, you might say seven and you'd be close, but it's probably 12. Well, how in the heck does the brain do that? Well, English demands different things because it's irregular. German and Italian are nice and neat, very tidy. A letter is a sound or pretty close. German is 85%. doesn't matter. The linguistic aspects are irrelevant to this conversation. What is important is that the circuit reflects the writing system. Now, why do I tell you all that? Because the medium does the same thing. If the medium that you're reading upon is hastening you, speeding you up, allowing you to do a lot of information or multitasks, that's really great for skimming, for browsing, for getting through information. But it does not give that circuit the same advantage for slowing the process down to give you the full Monty of the circuitry. And the, the full circuit is something that develops from this tiny little basic ability to read little primers to this unbelievable ability to read Moby Dick and Middlemarch and have our brain activate all the meanings it sees, all the syntactic functions, to be able to meander through the thoughts of another, connecting our emotions. All of that is a beautiful panoply of processes that the full circuit inhabits. But if you're doing just fast reading on a screen, you short circuit it. You don't give the time that those inferential, those thought processes require. So it's a real tough, it's a real tough situation we have because no one thinks about it like yeah. that. <laughs> it, yeah. Again, I mean, it wasn't something I'd given a lot of thought to and some, some kind of awareness of this started to open up for me a few years ago when I read Steven Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. Angel of Our Nature. Yes. Yes. One of the things that stood out to me from that book, again, I had never considered was he talked about violence in our world declined after the invention of the printing, after the invention of the printing press, when novels proliferated. And for the first time on a large scale, people started to read from the perspective of another person. Of other Yes, and, and I had never thought that that might help us to become more compassionate, maybe more self-aware, you know, this kind of thing. And in what you write about and, and speak about, again, I'd never heard this term, but there's something called deep reading. Yeah, that's my term. Yeah, yeah deep reading. Will you, because again, for the listener, I imagine there's many people that either this, they're kind of going, who cares or why does this matter? And this kind of thing. And until I started to read some of what you'd written and talk, and you're talking about how this is important to democracy, Absolutely. How, how this is important to compassion, to well-being, you know, this kind to our potential to realize, you know, our own potential, this kind of thing. But deep reading seems to, to be a linchpin maybe. In, yes, in it is. Things. So will you share, what is, what do you mean by that? And why does it matter? Okay. So 
in the 1920s and 30s, all the way till now, people who study literature use the term close reading, that you, you, you really are, 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 are being careful. But from a cognitive neuroscience viewpoint, I want to understand what does that really mean in terms of the processes we use? Because again, knowledge for me is how we change our world, how we improve the lives of each other. So when I began to understand that, re that the reading circuit had all these different processes, I wanted to give one big term that could help people understand that below the surface of what they call reading is this, this, this continuum of processes. And I'm gonna give you some of them so that your, your listener can really grapple with it themselves. The reality is that when you read, the beginning of the process is simple. You just are connecting what you see with what you know. But what you know, depending on what that background knowledge, gives you the power to make inference. So you take this connection and you start making analogies. Well, now just think of this for one second. What if you've never made an analogy before? The reality is that we're always making analogies from babies on, but now we're becoming more aware. We're becoming more conscious. We're building a base of knowledge that starts expanding because if this is true, well, then we can infer that this other thing is true too. So we're building analogical skills. We're bringing inference to bear. Very importantly and very connected to what you said, we begin to think this isn't just about our own thinking. We begin to be able to take on the perspective of another person, whether it's the perspective of a scientific opinion or, very importantly, the perspective of another human being. And I use the theological term from the, the work of John Dunn, John Scribner Dunn, and he uses the term passing over. It's a perfect word for what scientific terms would be perspective taking and compassion and empathy, but I use it because it's active. We are passing out of ourselves into another. We're beginning to understand not only how a person feels, but how they think. And this is really, this is really activating our theory of another's mind, yeah. our theory of another's feeling. That, when we bring it back to ourselves, makes us enriched. We take on a whole other viewpoint of these others who could have been portrayed as just foreigners, as people who lived in the 19th century, as people who are so different from us. We would have no ability to think about them. But novels and and the very active perspective taking gives us the beginnings of a true compassionate imagination that begins over time from childhood from frog and toad and charlotte's web all the way to marilyn robinson and gilead and and all the work of of our our finest novelist against jen comes to mind immediately because she keeps helping us understand who is other 
who do we think the world and town that she wrote it was all about this tiny town in new york and a group of you know of asian foreigners came into town and everyone had to change well that's what a novel does at its best it changes our brain it connects our feelings with those of others but that that brian is just the middle of deep reading that leads us this almost like think of it as a big hub a wheel with all these spokes it can lead us to a whole different version of truth it allows us whether we do it or not and that's where i worry about the medium if we allocate time we have the capacity for true critical analysis for true empathy we have that capacity that allows us to discern the truth of something or to understand that we don't understand and this is part of what the frontal lobes do they are making hypotheses out of all this information that we've brought to bear and then they're trying it on the left goes to the right goes back to the left and they say yes this is what it means i this is my fundamental analysis well then this is what i love about reading we have the capacity for a cerebral pause now whether we call that reflection or contemplation or the the generativity of thought that comes to us all those words i call it the reading home the sanctuary the heart of deep reading but we don't always get there in fact we too infrequently get there but we can get there if we reach the acme or the deepest parts of reading so what deep reading is is the ability to bring to bear all of our best and most sophisticated intellectual processes bring it to bear on the discernment and evaluation of truth of beauty and of other and using that as the if you will the stepping off point the bridge to our own best thought which is what proust said in a more beautiful way than i ever could that what true reading does at the heart of it is when we go beyond the wisdom of the author to discover our own wisdom that's deep reading that's so beautiful yeah i i think that's a, it's very it's even poetic and highly practical if we i think if we're willing to look at it and mm. see you know what we can what we can learn from it and part of what you said, I had a podcast guest, man, maybe a year ago. I love the way he said this, and I don't know if this was his own observation or someone else had quoted, but it's very similar to part of what you're saying now. He said, reading is like thinking with someone else's mind. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> it is true. Yeah. And then what, what you're saying, Proust is saying about going beyond. And what I love about that, again, from my view as a coach, where one of the things that I really, I endeavor to do with every client regardless of their circumstances or their desires, is to encourage them to really believe that they have their own answers inside them. Right. You know, and certainly we can learn from others, from their teachings, from their example, 
But ultimately, if we're going to find whatever the truth is for ourselves, it's probably going to be found our deepest truth or mm-hmm. truest truth in, inside us. I, I agree. I agree. I have a caveat, and that is that I think we, I don't know how coaching works in the way that you're discussing it, but I, I, I will liken, I will make an analogy to the best of the deep reading process. I'll make an analogy that says that you, the coach, as I would say, the great reader, is able to get to a place where they then enter their own best thoughts. You help, like Beatrice and Virgil, you help lead a person there. And I think, I think reading at its best can lead a person there. But then, and here's the caveat, one has to have, in my in my world, the cognitive patience, and I would say perhaps in your world, the personal patience and discipline to wait there and, and allow these thoughts to be discovered or uncovered. That's a real problem right now. I don't think, I think we have a paucity of patience. Yeah, I, I think you're right. When things are very on demand, mm-hmm. and very personalized, we already live in a very individualized, individualistic society. And you know, one of the things that you you talk about in this book as well is you describe our capacity to be thoughtful, critical analysts of knowledge rather than passive consumers of information. Right. And I see in myself sometimes <laughs> when I get what I call sucked into Facebook and it's just the endless scroll or in my kids or people in any public setting, but you all, and why, I mean, why I can see this might matter. And maybe you can speak to this or something else. You cite some work by Sarah, I believe it's Condrath at yes. Stanford. Yes. On empathy. Showed, yeah. A 40% decline in empathy in, in our young people over the last two decades with the most the sharpest decline in the last 10 years. Yeah, I, I wish we had a replication of that study because I, I, I am very concerned by that finding. We need more work on, on it. It's a hit, however, that connects a lot of other findings. Our, our, the loneliness that so many of our young people feel that despite having a hundred or four hundred friends, they feel so alone and they feel so depressed. And you see, you see all this this emphasis in Facebook. I I think you know I I I will give credit where credits due. I think it it even had wonderful idealistic elements in its beginnings as well as some crude ones probably but i think there was a real desire for people to be able to connect but i think what's happened is that often it's in lieu of in place of real connection and so i i see this inability to really empathize with others, to really connect with others. 
and talk about FaceTime, we, we need real faces. We need each other. We need to be with each other. And, and the, the falseness, the pseudo-face, doesn't replace the reality of really sitting with another human or going through joys and sorrows and triumphs and failures. You know, it is very worrisome to me, this study. I, I, hope, I hope another study will prove it wrong, but I think it will prove it even more correct. I just don't know, Brian. I, 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 I quoted the study, but as I tell every audience who asks me about it, um, we need replications to be on safer grounds. But we have so many other findings that are supportive of that direction, unfortunately. Well, and even the th- some of the other things that you mentioned in the book about, you know, this term coined by Linda Stone at uh, Microsoft yes. about continuous yeah. partial attention. Yeah. Oh, she's so funny. I see her everywhere. I just came back from Berlin. Not I mean, just not just, but uh-huh. and there she was. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> and, and I had to give a talk at the Falling Walls conference. There was the 30th anniversary of the falling of the wall, and I used the term continuous partial attention. And at the end of my talk, there she was. She said, "Thank you." <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm attempting to connect something where there is no connection, or maybe they are in fact related. But this idea of a society in which continuous partial attention, or this other term you talk about, hyperattention, it doesn't surprise me that a society where those become a norm is a society in which empathy declines. Yes, I think you're right. You're right. I, and I, I want to say, not only are you right, you take my point to a place that I didn't take it in the book and would have preferred if I had. So I really appreciate your particular insight here. What I always connect it to is memory. But the reality is, it's all connected. Because if you are only, you know, entering anything, reading, or life, and you are distracted, or you're only giving part, part of your attention, from the cognitive standpoint, you don't have time to consolidate it in memory as well, but you also don't have time to pass over into the other's perspective as well. Yeah. So you are, when you're short-circuiting, I, I was emphasizing the short-circuiting of memory and consolidation and critical analysis and discernment of truth, but you're also short-circuiting empathy. You, you are indeed not giving it enough time. And gosh, we, we, you know, when I connect it all to democracy in the book, to me, the two most important aspects are if we give less time every single day, less time to critical analysis, because we are just not attending in the same way, and we give less time to empathy, we will not be able to evaluate the truth of what I call the falsely raised fears and the falsely raised hopes of leaders who would like us not to analyze. I will never forget my horror at a particular leader who will be nameless, who said, I love the undereducated. And I thought, it's, it, everybody was cheering. 
And I was thinking, do they not realize that that makes them so susceptible to any lie, any false fear, any false hope that that demagogue-like figure would give? It's not... It was, it was not the insult that it also conveys because he was making it a good thing to be undereducated, but it makes us so much more manipulable. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's hard for me to believe anyone cheering for that, except maybe those who are also undereducated. <laughs> I don't, don't mean to. It was uh, an audience I don't even want to say. Mm. I, I, you know, my, my politics are very clear. I seek virtuous leaders. I seek those who will tell the truth, however difficult it is for them and for our country and for our world, and to accept knowledge as one of the great guideposts of all leaders. And to the extent that that goes missing, I believe we are in true danger as a society. Yeah, I I think you're right. I do. Okay, I have at least three more questions in this section before we transition. And uh, okay, yeah, <laughs> we're we're moving. I better okay. be. I was not succinct. It's my fault. No, no, no. I that, will it, have to hurry us up. <laughs> no, no rush. So the first thing, the first thing I want to ask is, you know, I have felt for a long time, and I've heard some things that suggest to me that reading and writing. Our form of magic. Language is a form of magic in some way. And even someone pointed out to me that even the term spelling, mm-hmm. you know, it is one reading of that is that there's a magic in that, like a spell. Now, I don't mean to be too dramatic, but with we know in language, we language has the power to create things that didn't exist before. But I've I've heard before that the Egyptians thought that written language was a form of magic. And I'm wondering if you maybe would educate me a little on your view mm-hmm. of what, mm-hmm. what what cultures or what have you learned about the magic of language? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I think any history of literacy begins with that because the Egyptians uh, in the beginning it, you one society after another, the Sumerians, the Egyptians, the Akkadians became a little bit more so, Druids, always those who had the letters, those who had that knowledge were the caste of those with power. So, you know, you have, even in the Bible, in the beginning was the word, logos. This is across all one culture after another, Western cultures, Eastern cultures, those who possessed this had power because they could, in fact, preserve the knowledge of the past. And so from the very start, writing was a kind of, of, of power. And, and certainly the Egyptians, as they made their hieroglyphs more and more, if you will, encrypted with meaning, that is when magic, if you will, became too much part of the system, it actually made it too difficult to continue. So there is a, there's a fine line here between power and then when the encryption of secret meanings becomes so encapsulated and entangled that almost no one can do it. So it's 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 a fascinating and complex question. But in terms of magic, you see, I 
I do. I, let me let me call it something else. Let me call it a semi miraculous aspect of what language signifies to the species, because language is always a drive. Charles Taylor, the philosopher, says this much better than I ever could be. Humboldt, Wilhelm von Humboldt, I mean, all of these Germans, Herder, Humboldt, so many of them understood this, that language is this drive towards something that is the, the, the furthest thought that we have. It never reaches it. Now, there was this wonderful quote. Oh, my goodness. There's this wonderful quote that says that language is like the copper kettle that we make for bears to dance to all the while we would make music that would melt the stars. You see, that's what it is. It's, it's this attempt. It's this, oh, it's the cracked. Language is the cracked kettle we make for bears to dance to. All the while we would make music that, that would melt the stars. We want language to be the bridge to the highest, most aspiring aspect of our being. Well, I call that the semi-miraculous aspect of what the brain does when it processes language. It generates, it's, it's, it makes meaning, but even more important than makes meaning, it generates, it incites, it propels meaning. It's, oh, and, and I think of Proust, he said it's this fertile form of communications. It is, it's fertile. It's, I mean, I love the word generative because it goes beyond itself. That's miraculous. Yeah. Okay, is. that's it what is. I think. <laughs> okay. Yeah, maybe deserving even of dropping the semi. I think that is miraculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. No, thank you for that. Okay. So the other two things that I want to touch on in or explore in this section, one is, and I know this could be its own a whole interview as well, but it's the work you're doing around literacy and around the world. And maybe more specifically, maybe a place to, to dig in is with the XPRIZE. Ah, uh, yes. And I don't know if this uh, is the same yes. thing, but I saw a video online, I think last year that was kind of spokespeople for it were Tony Robbins and Peter Diamandis. And they were talking about a tablet and if it could be, is, I, I don't know if this is the same project or maybe related. Uh, yeah, it's very related. <laughs> so in 2012, I began to become, oh gosh, it was a fascinating uh, project, an initiative that was first begun by Nicholas Negroponte at the MIT Media Lab. And he had done something called, you know, One Laptop Per Child. And it had, it had a mixed, let's say it's mixed failure because it really, except in Uruguay, was, was really not taken up. And in part, it was because the kids can't read. So the laptop was not helpful in the way he thought it could be. And so he and I and Cynthia Brazil from MIT and then two other people, Stephanie Gottwald and Tinsley Gallion, 
we all started a project in Ethiopia where we took tablets that we curated with apps that we believed could help children learn to read who have no teacher, would never have a teacher, lived without water, running water, or any of the, they, I mean, they lived in the hut of the imaginative mind. You know, we think of an African hut of the past, this is where they live. So we took this to Walanchiti in Ethiopia and in Wanchi, and there we studied how children learned, and it was amazing. It, it was not simple. It was never simple. And, but yet, after a while, some of the children began to learn how to decode. It was, you know, over time, probably a considerable amount of time, but they were able to induce. And reading doesn't do well through induction. A lot of people believe you can induce the rules. Well, some kids can, but it's very difficult. And yet a fair amount of these children, a fair percentage, did just that. And the little villages around these villages said, those are where the smart kids are. Again, the magic of reading the kids. But the tablets then became a kind of placeholder for the goal that Peter Diamandis had of inventing a prize, which was became the X Prize for, for you know, Literacy for Learning, in which companies and groups around the world would vie to teach children to read with a tablet. And, you know, the success is as mixed as ours was. It, they certainly made progress towards it, but we have not, if you will, perfected that yet. It's, it's en route. And I'm very appreciative of Peter Diamandis and Elon Musk also contributed to, a lot of people contributed to this prize. And there, there, is, there was great progress, but we're still not, I, I, in my opinion, as the, you know, someone who, is, uh, who really knows what I want for the kids, it was the, a good and even great beginning, but we need to go further than where we are. But now there are people who are taking tablets with much more guidance, if you will, the group that I was part of and still am on their advisory board is Curious Learning in Boston. And there are projects all across Africa and India, even some in rural United States, where the tablets that we, my group, is curating and in fact invented one app that gives children about the first three, four, five months of early reading, and it really does a good job of doing that. And that that one app is called Feed the Monster, and it, I think it's up to four, at least forty five different languages now. Wow, that's great. You know, it's no surprise to me that there's still lots of work to do, lots of distance to cover before we achieve global literacy, like we have in you know many parts of the developed world, when so many people still lack access to basic amenities like a toilet or clean That's water, right. you know, so, water. But, but I am glad to know. All the kids had to carry water uh, two hours to and from a wow. place in Wallachiti. That's a, it's amazing. But I'm, yeah. I'm glad to know this work is, is it's ongoing. Yeah. And there are wonderful people in India who are, I mean, there are various groups now 
who are really working on global literacy. And, I can, and the Vatican is very interested, and they have a group. And in fact, the Vatican in February will have a huge meeting on bringing educators from around the world with the agenda of working for the disenfranchised and poor around the world. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And a perfect segue. I understand you had the chance to meet the Pope. Yes, I I'm, did. I'm not sure what the what the nature of your meeting was or how it went, but will you talk about that for, for, for a moment? Well, you know, the one and only thing that my mother, who it was who unfortunately died not too long ago, the one thing that she would allow an article in the little tiny local newspaper on was that I met the Pope. <laughs> okay finally she was okay you know she would never brag about any of her four children and so that was the only time she allowed something like that it was so cute okay the reality is that the pope meets the group and i'm so lucky that i have met him several times but it's as always a part of the group of course he's very nice to us as individuals but he would never know me from anyone anywhere well he meets a lot of people <laughs> he meets so many people but yeah. i will say it was one of the great moments of my life to realize that you know there is no easy life for a pope but this this very human man is dedicating himself to two things the poor and the earth and that is he he could not be more serious about those two things. His first reflex is kindness. That's what I saw. His first reflex is kindness. So then the last part, the last thing I want to ask you about, and I realize this might invite you or require you to dispense with humility, <laughs> if, oh, if such a thing dear. is possible, but you have received a lot of honors, a lot of recognition. I, th I think, you know, very well deserved from, from what I understand, the work you've done with not only literacy, but dyslexia and learning science, you know, neuroscience and education. What would you say is if you picked one award or one honor that's been significant to you out of the many you've received, what would you single out at least in this moment and why? In front of me, I have an award that I never show, let anyone see. And it's because it's called the Einstein Award, and the last thing you want to do is show your students you have an Einstein Award. <laughs> Nobody's ever heard of it, but it's from the Dyslexia Foundation. But the reason why I love it is because on it, it says, Investigatio Mater Scientiae. In other words, I'm an investigator, I'm a scientist, and in the very middle of it, it says Mater, Mother. So it meant so much to me because other awards, I'm so happy. I'm so grateful for every single thing anyone ever, you know, recognizes the work. But to have this award recognize that I'm a mother, <laughs> that meant so much to me. So I keep it hidden. <laughs> it's like this obelisk, this crystal obelisk. That's neat. Well, thank, thank you for sharing that. So, and by the way, so I have my fact right in the intro. Is it accurate to say that you're a Rhodes Scholar? Is that the... No, no, no. Fulbright. I'm sorry. That's a Fulbright. A Fulbright Scholar. Yeah. Fulbright. Fulbright. Okay. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Because the term was something I didn't recognize yeah. the way it was no, worded. It was Fulbright. Fulbright. And it... Okay. My apologies. 
Not um, at all. It would have okay. been lovely to be a Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> okay, I would love Fulbright. to be a Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> Well, There's on the no internet, you, time. you can Don't, say anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. No, no. okay. So let's transition now to the enlightening lightning round. If you're okay with ah, that? yes. Okay. So this next section is designed to be a series of brief questions. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. But my intention is to basically ask the question and step aside. Okay? Question number one. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life uh-huh. is like a blank. Quest. Okay. Question number two, which I'm shamelessly borrowing from Peter Thiel. Oh. What important truth do you believe that most people disagree with you on? I would say many people, not most people. But I think many people fail to understand that reading in all its complexity needs to have the science of reading known by every teacher and that that is our best avenue into ensuring that all our children have their best shot at becoming fully comprehending deep readers and too many people disagree with me on that Mm. okay thank you question number three i know this one might be a stretch but please just roll with me here. <laughs> if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Well, wisdom is not contemplation alone, not action alone, but contemplation in action. Right on. Thank you. Okay. Number four, what book other than one of your own book or books, have you gifted or recommended most often? Gilead. Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. Why that book? To me, it is the epitome of an author's ability to bring to life the luminousness that lies in everyday life, that if we but believe in it, we will see it and we will give it away. And I see it in that book, and I give that book away so that everyone will know that there is a quest or search for wisdom that can, that can exist in the most ordinary matters of our life. And if we but believe we will see it, believe we will feel it, we will be giving the most beautiful eyes to our everyday. So I think Robinson, Robinson is probably the person who really instills beauty, truth, empathy, love in everyday matters like no other author for me. It's, it's truly religious poetry at its best. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you. Okay, next question. So as we've discussed in this interview already, you travel very uh-huh. often. Too often. Uh, what is one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? I take my, if you will, what I, what other people might call spiritual reading, but meditative reading, I take it with me every place I go so that when I wake up in any strange place, I have those two 
doesn't always, it's not always the same two, but usually one of them will be the same and the other will be whatever I'm reading that will center me no matter where I am. Do you mind if I ask what, what are they, if one is constant, what is it or what are they now? The, the one that's constant is the strangest journal called Given Thoughts by Someone No One Would Ever Know. She's a Swiss woman, much older. She's an artist, but she's very, very spiritual. And she wrote it in German because her friends said, please give it to us. And then her friends translated it to French and English. And my best friend in Switzerland gave that to me. So it's a thought that's very, very beautiful for every single day. But it's a prayer. It's a prayer for every day. And then the other book is often, right now, it's called The House of Wisdom by this theologian who was my former teacher, John Donne. And I reread books like his, or Thomas Merton, or Pablo Dors, The Biography of Silence. I read, I read a few pages of these books because they, they bring me an awareness of, of the beauty of life wherever we are, but also a connectedness, a connectedness beyond ourselves. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, next question. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? <laughs> I am so working on that. <laughs> you, you I am me both. <laughs> such a failure. I am an absolute abject failure. I give Man, no you're advice. Hard on because... yourself. You're really hard on yourself. <laughs> no, I'm a failure. I can't sleep well. I wish I could. But I guess the one thing that I do right, the one and only thing I do right. No, there's two. No, there's three. Okay, now I have three things. <laughs> okay, it's a good start. Okay, three things. The first is that I have a, a practice of meditation, whatever one wants to call it, meditation, prayer, what a spiritual discipline that I believe is not only good for my soul, but it's good for my body. Where did you where did you learn it? Uh, I learned it in the Harvard Ed School, grad school, had a meditation class years ago, and I learned it there in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The second is that, of course, everyone does diet and exercise, and I a diet meaning Mediterranean type diet. Okay, I do that. But the third thing is probably what I would, would put as second, and that is always having connections to my children and my, my family and friends. When those, those two things are intact, meditation and connectedness to my, to my God, my family, and my friends, if that's all in order, your school of good living... <laughs> is practiced by me. Everything else I fail at. You know, <laughs> vitamins, I buy them. I don't take them. Uh, you know, I exercise. I try really hard, but I don't do it as well as I should. But I try. Well, it sounds like you've got you've got the foundation pre pretty, pretty solid. And it's one thing I reflect on often, by the way, that we have done enough research as a society and, of course, the individuals within it and enough living that we know the components of what it means to live a good life, they're not complicated. 
No. Right. And not. you you just touched on the some of the very biggest ones. The, the thing is, are you consistently doing it? And it sounds like you are. So good for well, you. Well, I, I will say the fourth one with greater, the it has more complexity to it. And that is, whoever we are, do we try to use our what we have been given in the service of others? I really think that is such an important aspect to life. And the fifth is my more neuroscience self. And I'll give you that, even though I'm not doing it myself with any great skill, always try to learn something. Whether Whether it's a reading of a book, which is what I do well, or learning a language or another skill or an art, which I don't do well. Practice the piano, I don't do well. All those things I know you should, I tell everybody else. But, you know, I know, so the fourth and the fifth, the fourth would be in the top one. The fifth is really for your brain, you should do that. Yeah. Well, and I suspect you do better than you're giving yourself credit for. I suspect. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. There's just not enough time in the day. Yeah. Okay. Question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? I wish every American would know the truth of their leaders and the necessity for virtue and moral leadership in the highest values of our nation. I wish everyone would act on that and would turn away from fear of loss of something that they think is making them great fear of others whom they think are are taking things away from them, desire for things they don't need, and just absolutely want to lead a life that they can be proud of for their next generation, a life of truth and beauty and virtue. And I want every American to have leaders from the highest to the most local levels who will be models of that and to reject those for whom that is not true. Thank you. Number eight, what is the most important or useful relationship advice you've ever learned and successfully applied? It's so funny. A friend of mine, dear, my best friend's husband died very recently from ALS. That's not funny. And I kept trying to think, what would he say to me if I could talk to him? And he, and when I image, give us, try to think, what would he say? You know, I, I hope there's an afterlife, but none of us ever know. But if I could reach out, what would he say? And he would say, just keep in touch. (laughs) Just keep in touch with your friends, your family, your loved ones, and the earth and your work. Keep in touch. And you're doing that. I try. That's great. Thank you. Okay. And final question here in the lightning round is aside from compound interest, what is the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something you're always sure to do or never? You're always sure to, you're always sure to never do. That's a it's a weird sense. Yeah. <laughs> with money. What what's something you always do or never do with it? I hope that I can always keep money in a perspective that it is for 
my health and the safety and the well-being of myself, my family, and my friends, and not for other reasons that I keep it totally in perspective. And so my one son, who's a starving artist, <laughs> and my other son, who is, works for Google, I want them always to look at it similarly so that if one needs something, the other will help them. And that's how they think. And, they, and so if they keep thinking that way, then I'm not worried about it. I don't want it ever used for wrong purposes. Mm. That's a beautiful perspective. Mm. Thank you. Okay, so that, congratulations, you've survived the enlightening lightning round. Oh, good. <laughs> Admirably. <laughs> <laughs> I've enjoyed this. I've learned a lot from our conversation. I think people listening to this will as well. Final things here. One is, as an expression of gratitude to you, I've gone ahead and made a Kiva loan, a micro loan on your behalf. Um, <laughs> to an entrepreneur in India. So oh, a, wow. Yeah, a 27-year-old named Daxaben who lives in Gujarat. She will use this money to purchase clothing that she'll sell and to improve the quality of life. So thank you for giving me a reason to do that. Woohoo! Yeah. Yay! Never have I been paid better. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for that. And then also for people who do want to connect with you or they want to learn more from you, what would you have them do? So my son, my Google son, made me have a web page. So it, they should look my web page up. Marianne at MarianneWolf.com is the email. And I think you, that's just look up that web page. And I will try my hardest to answer people, though it's hard for me now because I'm working sort of fever pitch in California on literacy. But I'll try my hardest. Forgive me if I'm not able to do it as quickly as I would like or they would like. And forgive me a plenty, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, if I don't answer. The other thing I would love them to do is really read, if, if they could, the first and last, first four letters and last letter of my book. The, the middle ones are for parents, and if they aren't a parent, they don't necessarily need five, six, seven, and eight, but for them, I would love that as my gift to them. So you're, you're saying the last letter in this book, Reader, Come Home? Yes. It's, I really want them to understand this. And this is the letter that's letter nine called Reader, Come Home. Letter nine. Yes. Yeah. Reader, Come Home. It's about the good life, the Aristotelian good life, the good reader and the good life in Aristotle's terms, mm, are the same. Okay, fabulous. Well, thank you. So with that, let's go ahead and, and wrap up. I, again, I just want to, to thank you for making, making time for doing the work you're doing. I know it touches so many and will have a benefit that will, is generational. You know, we'll probably never see or understand really and acknowledge you for that and then for making the time to talk with me today and and going through whatever it took for you to get here through your travels and <laughs> yeah. do that and staying with it, especially in this holiday time as it's just between Christmas and New Year as we record this in 2019. So thank you. Great. Thank you. Yeah. And happy New Year to all of you, to Jules and to Dallin and to Brian. Thank you for all your work. Well, thank you. 
Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.